Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This was almost the perfect murder. Introducing a new podcast from Court TV. They were killed by their own children. Murder and the Menendez brothers. I just started firing. What was in front of you? My parents. Oh, that is on tape. <laughs> Murder and the Menendez brothers, a Court TV mystery. Available now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is the final installment of our ongoing series, Dead Blondes. Where are you going? To Hollywood. Hollywood? Do you come here for excitement? I'm better than a human woman. Would you rather I be a brunette? My dress. Do you like it? I, I don't know. It's such a shock to see you dressed. I'm so alone. I'm so We began this series talking a little bit about blonde beauty and what it has historically represented, including fantasies of eternal youth, purity, and a denial of death, all qualities which can be easily sexualized, and which, when captured by a movie or still camera, can be elevated into ethereality so easily that you can forget that it's all a construct. After telling the stories of 10 movie actresses, today we're going to finish this series by telling the story of the life and gruesome death of a woman who did act in movies, but was more famous while alive for being a Playboy Playmate. More than in Hollywood movies, in which even in the worst circumstances women are allowed to talk or sing or move around and thus at least signify real-life human beings. In the pages of a magazine like Playboy, women are totally flattened into a fantasy of compliance to the gaze of whoever's flipping through the magazine. 
The whole point of pornography, especially glossy pornography like circa late 70s Playboy, is to allow the consumer to totally shut out the real world, hopefully temporarily, and focus only on desire. As Teresa Carpenter, a Pulitzer Prize-winning observer of today's subject, once put it, playmates are surrounded by an aura, which, quote, does not admit the possibility of bladder infections or shaving necks, let alone death. We will end this series by talking about a woman who, like many of the women we've already discussed, was sexually exploited by men who looked at her beauty and saw a combination of dollar signs and an opportunity to exercise control. Like Marilyn Monroe and Barbara Loden before her, she followed orders to do things that she didn't want to do because she thought it was what she had to do. She thought that fame, what she wanted, was a prize that could only be won by doing things that humiliated and hurt her. By the time she felt loved and empowered enough to stand up for herself, it was too late. Join us, won't you, for one last dead blonde chapter. The story of Dorothy Stratton. Dorothy Hoog Stratton was born February 26, 1960, in British Columbia. Her father left shortly after her younger brother John was born, and her mother remarried and had another daughter, named Louise, who was eight years younger than Dorothy. The family didn't have much money and often had to rely on welfare while Dorothy was growing up. Teresa Carpenter would later write that young Dorothy, quote, floated along like a particle in a solution. This devastatingly sad description recalls Elia Kazan's assessment of Barbara Loden and the character she created, Wanda, as women who floated like debris. 17-year-old Dorothy was working at her local Dairy Queen when she met Paul Snyder, a 26-year-old dance club impresario slash pimp. Snyder had fled the Vancouver nightlife world, where he owed a bunch of money to unsavory characters, for Los Angeles, where he reinvented himself as a pimp whose stable was full of women styled to resemble 1950s stars. L.A. didn't work out for him, and he was looking for new opportunities in Vancouver when he spotted Dorothy. That girl could make me a lot of money, he told a friend. Snyder doesn't seem to have been transparent with Dorothy about his resume. Instead of rushing to pimp her out, he wooed Dorothy like a boyfriend, buying her gifts and escorting her to her senior prom. After her high school graduation, Snyder coaxed her into posing nude for two photographers who Snyder had hired, one of whom had connections to Playboy. Dorothy hadn't wanted to pose naked, and she didn't want to be in Playboy. But Snyder told her it was the only way she'd ever break into the movies. She didn't know that this was patently false. Even the most famous Playboy playmates were considered damaged goods by most of Hollywood. Playboy was searching for a special new playmate to celebrate the publication's 25th anniversary, and Snyder submitted these photos of Dorothy as part of that contest. By August 1978, 
Dorothy had secured an invitation to Los Angeles for a test shoot. Because an 18-year-old was not then considered of age in Canada, Dorothy's mother, Nellie, had to sign a release, giving her consent for her daughter to model nude. The shoot was a success, and Dorothy was welcomed into the Playmate fold. She was given a job waitressing at the Playboy Club in Los Angeles. Hugh Hefner himself helped her secure a work visa. And in August 1979, she was named Playmate of the Month. By then, the Playboy organization had shortened Dorothy's last name from Hoog Stratton to the more flowing and succinct Stratton. As you probably know, maybe from this very show, in the 1960s and 70s, the studio system collapsed, which allowed a new generation of filmmakers to come in and help change the way the studios made money and made business decisions. This effectively killed the old star system that had been in place since the silent era. The studio system would get rebuilt again in a new, more corporate-than-ever form, thanks to blockbusters like Jaws and Star Wars. But that process wasn't so far along yet that it was incontrovertible. In other words, in the late 1970s, there was still the open possibility that in the near future, stars would be made by some institution or body other than Hollywood movies. In their own way, Playboy had begun molding and incubating stars in a way that was very similar to the ways in which studios used to. But when Dorothy came around, there was this sense that she was different. She was the first playmate since Jane Mansfield, who seemed destined for a promising film career. Unlike Mansfield, or Marilyn Monroe before her, Dorothy Stratton was homegrown by Playboy. With Dorothy, Hefner and Playboy saw an opportunity to feed a star to Hollywood, rather than the other way around. Throughout 1979, Dorothy started to get acting work, most of it bit parts that required nothing more than looking like a Playboy playmate. She went back to Canada briefly to star in a softcore exploitation movie called Autumn Born, and then she landed the title role in Galaxina, a tongue-in-cheek sci-fi spoof. In the opening crawl of this direct satire of Star Wars, Dorothy's character is described as a machine with feelings. Basically, she's a sexy robot whose artificial intelligence evolves to the point where she can respond with subservient enthusiasm to a human man's attempt to have sex with her. As Dorothy moved from opportunity to opportunity, Paul Snyder found himself less and less involved in his hand-picked Gravy Train's career. He started pressuring Dorothy to marry him in order to solidify their bond and, of course, his ability to spend her money. Various friends told Dorothy not to marry Paul because they didn't think getting married at age 19 would be good for her career. Hugh Hefner later said that he gave her a talking to, advising basically the same thing. He also had someone do a background check on Paul, which didn't come up with anything that he could use against him. Though Dorothy seems to have been unsure that she even really loved Paul Snyder, by the summer of 1979, she had given in, apparently because she felt like she owed him something. The wedding took place on June 1st, 1979 in Las Vegas. Within a few weeks, the issue of Playboy featuring Dorothy as the August Playmate of the Month 
would hit the newsstands. As one of Playboy's top stars, Dorothy was expected to hang out at the Playboy Mansion. Her husband told Dorothy that she had his blessing to have sex with Hugh Hefner, if she had to, to help her career. Hefner would later deny that the casting couch had a place at Playboy. Peter Bogdanovich would say that Dorothy told him that Hefner had pressured her into sleeping with him more than once, but she was able to rebuff him. Bogdanovich would describe a different scenario in print, based on a story told to him by a platonic male confidant of Dorothy's after her death. According to this account, on Dorothy's first night at the Playboy Mansion, after she had returned to her private room for the night, the phone rang. An assistant on the line asked if she would join Mr. Hefner in the jacuzzi. Dorothy was afraid to say no. Bogdanovich would describe what happened in that jacuzzi as rape. Hefner would vehemently deny that he raped Dorothy Stratton. When the incident happened, and even years later when Bogdanovich and Hefner began publicly arguing about it, the conversation about rape was not evolved. It was generally believed that rape had to be physically violent. Now, we understand that its violence can be emotional and psychological. What seems clear is that Dorothy Stratton didn't want to have sex with Hugh Hefner. And what she wanted didn't matter. After that incident, pushy, manipulative Paul Snyder looked to Dorothy like a safe harbor. But shortly after they married, Dorothy began to regret the marriage. And by the fall of 1979, she was using the mansion and the excuse of the work that she was expected to do there as a way of escaping a marital home she didn't want to be in. The night after Thanksgiving in 1979, Dorothy was heavily featured in a TV special, which aired on ABC, called Playboy's Roller Disco and Pajama Party. Dorothy's part in the special included dancing and roller skating in a skimpy bikini and playing romantic shtick, culminating with a kiss with Family Feud host Richard Dawson. It probably goes without saying that Dawson, like Hefner and other men who hung out at the Playboy Mansion, was significantly older than 19-year-old Dorothy. Dawson, in fact, was about two and a half times her age. In this holiday weekend special airing on one of what were then only three major networks, we see the mainstreaming of what I described a couple episodes back as the subtext of Grace Kelly's career. The young, nubile blonde as youth serum and savior for men of a previous generation. Hefner was incredibly impressed by Dorothy's work in the special, and soon thereafter, he decided to make her the Playmate of the Year of 1980. For her Playmate of the Month shoot, Dorothy had been styled as sporty, romantic, and relatively natural. In two of the images, she was fully clothed. In one, she wore a raincoat, and in another, she jogged in a sweatshirt and short shorts. There was one fully nude image, and it was more demure than one in which Dorothy, wearing a white lace thong teddy that covered quite a bit, bent over to show the camera her bikini-bottom tan line. The Playboy of the Year pictorial would be different. Much more glamorous, much more staged. 
in several shots, Dorothy, dressed in black lace, poses on a red velvet couch, calling to mind the red backdropped nude calendar shots of Marilyn Monroe, which ended up making both the magazine and that actress's career. In another shot, a full nude, Dorothy appears stretched out on top of a red robe in a pose similar enough to Marilyn's in the calendar to invite comparison between the two women's bodies. The spread would begin with a close-up of Dorothy's face, her blonde curls and heavy dark eyeliner calling to mind Jean Harlow. With the same photographer, Mario Casilli, Dorothy was putting together a portfolio in which she posed as both Harlow and Monroe, as well as Bridget Bardot and Betty Grable, for a Playboy spread that they were planning to call Dorothy Stratton's Century of Famous Blondes. Playboy wouldn't actually publish these photos while Dorothy was still alive. Even her Playmate of the Year spread was not to be seen by the public until April 1980, by which point Dorothy's personal and professional lives would have been completely upended by Peter Bogdanovich. In 1978, Peter Bogdanovich was 39 years old. He was incredibly famous, and a lot of people hated him. The second film he directed, The Last Picture Show, had been an enormous hit in 1971, one of the defining movies of the new Hollywood era. On the set, where his wife Polly Platt was working as his production designer, Bogdanovich had fallen in love with his 21-year-old actress, Sybil Shepard. Over the next few years, Bogdanovich would leave Platt and their two daughters, and he and Sybil Shepard would become the Brad and Angelina of their day. Bogdanovich would direct two more massive hit movies, What's Up Doc and Paper Moon. Then, he'd cast Sybil in an adaptation of Daisy Miller, which flopped. Then, he'd cast Sybil and Burt Reynolds in At Long Last Love a musical full of Cole Porter songs set in the Art Deco 1930s of Astaire and Rogers. At Long Last Love was perceived as one of the most misbegotten films of the 1970s. It is one of my all-time favorite films. But it was so badly received and did so much to destroy Bogdanovich and Shepard's reputations that they were unable to continue working together a major backlash against the two of them had begun, and it wasn't helped by the fact that Peter was perceived as the most arrogant man in Hollywood. If you watch interviews with him from the first half of the 1970s, it's not hard to see why people felt this way. But look, he'd made at least three masterpieces by the age of 35. He and Sybil were probably the most photogenic couple in Hollywood. He was great at what he did. He looked great doing it. He knew it and he loved it. Of course he was hated. But he was also sort of awesome. In 1972, Playboy published two frames of the last picture show, showing Sybil Shepard nude. They did this without seeking permission from Sybil or Peter, who wouldn't have granted it. Shepard sued Playboy, and in the settlement, she asked for the rights to a book Playboy owned called St. Jack. An agreement was made for Playboy to co-produce a film based on the novel, with Bogdanovich directing. By the time that film was made, Sybil and Peter had broken up. 
According to him, they drifted apart because they were forced to make movies with other people. In her very good autobiography, she admits that they were both unfaithful and explains that she was nearing age 30 and wanted to have children, but Peter had two kids and couldn't commit to having more. After eight years with Shepard, Bogdanovich plunged into what he would describe as, quote, more than a year of devastating promiscuity, which left me exhausted and miserable, hoping for an enduring bond that would never lose its strength or magic. During that period, he started periodically hanging out at the Playboy Mansion. Bogdanovich first met Dorothy at a Playboy party in October 1978. He was, by this point, pretty disillusioned with the Playboy scene, so they didn't meet again for a year, when Bogdanovich visited the mansion again during the shoot of the TV special. Dorothy remembered him, and she approached him. At first, he didn't recognize her as the same woman from a year earlier. During that time, under Playboy's supervision, her naturally blonde hair had been bleached, Jean Harlow White. They had a conversation. Bogdanovich told her he was going to make a movie in the next few months and asked if she'd be interested in reading for a small part. Over the next few months, as a friendship developed between Dorothy and Peter, and he struggled not to make a move on the married Playboy playmate who he was falling in love with, Bogdanovich would reconceive that movie to put Dorothy Stratton at its center. They All Laughed was initially inspired by Ben Gazzara and Bogdanovich's romantic travails while making St. Jack. Bogdanovich ended up writing a script for an ensemble of players, including two of his own recent ex-girlfriends, supermodel Patty Hansen and singer Colleen Camp, and Audrey Hepburn, who Gazzara had fallen in love with while making the disastrous film Bloodline with her a year before. Even Bogdanovich's two daughters, Antonia and Sashi, would be given roles as the daughters of Gazzara's divorced detective. Bogdanovich had started writing the screenplay while still pining over Sybil Shepard, who had left him, gone home to Memphis, and there swiftly married another guy. John Ritter's character was initially conceived as being in the same boat. Bogdanovich even wanted to have him mooning on screen over a photograph of Sybil. When Bogdanovich met Dorothy, he began to rewrite the film inspired by her. In a film about three male detectives who become involved in a number of interlocking love triangles involving women they're hired to surveil, the primary romance would now be between the P.I. played by John Ritter, who wore a copy of Bogdanovich's signature oversized glasses for the role, and Dorothy, who would play a ray of sunshine who is unhappily married to a not-so-great guy. In January 1980, after she had confessed to him the problems in her marriage and her mounting distaste for Paul, Peter and Dorothy's relationship became romantic. They first kissed on a Los Angeles beach. Bogdanovich noticed someone taking pictures of them that day, but he was sure he was probably mistaken. It was probably just some tourist photographing the ocean. In March, Dorothy traveled from L.A. to New York to make the movie. She had managed to convince Paul not to come with her by telling him that it was a closed set and spouses were forbidden. She brought six suitcases with her, containing most of her clothes and books. 
Though Dorothy was keeping the true nature of her relationship with Peter secret from everyone in her life, including her husband and family, it was an open secret on the set of They All Laughed. She moved into Peter's suite at the Plaza Hotel and would only go to her own hotel to pick up messages from her increasingly alienated husband. What neither Bogdanovich nor Stratton knew while they were having this affair on the set of a movie about private detectives having affairs was that Paul Snyder was using Dorothy's money to pay private detectives to watch his unfaithful wife. Aside from this surveillance, she had other reasons to be afraid of Paul and to worry about giving him evidence that would, in his mind, justify his own bad actions. He was doing a lot of cocaine, and it made him paranoid and aggressive. He was so possessive of Dorothy that he couldn't handle any kind of rival for her affections. At one point, Playboy had given Dorothy a puppy, and Paul poisoned it. Dorothy's mother Nellie hated Paul and had warned her daughter that she believed he would try to hurt her if she left him. Nellie predicted that Paul would try to disfigure Dorothy's money-making face. At this point, it seemed like the only reason to stay with him was to avoid what might happen if she were to leave him. And that kind of thinking was how she got into the situation to begin with. When Peter asked her why she had married Paul, she said, I didn't want to get into an argument. She was also feeling trapped by the Playboy organization and the control they were able to contractually wield over her. Her Playmate of the Year pictorial came out while she was shooting They All Laughed in New York, and she was horrified by it. Dorothy told Peter that the only way she had gotten through the shoot was by focusing on the hate she felt for the whole enterprise. I hated all those men so much, and my hatred was so strong, it made a kind of invisible shield between them and me, she said. The hate protected me. But it couldn't protect her fully. Later that summer, an issue of Playboy came out, including an image that was taken when she didn't know the photographer was shooting, in which she was captured changing positions and unwittingly revealing more of herself than she would have wanted. In Bogdanovich's eyes, this incident and the image it produced was typical of the whole Playboy enterprise, tricking a woman into giving more than she wanted to and then selling that fantasy of dominance wrapped in the veneer of groovy art. And they all laughed. Dorothy was playing herself in a dream version of the real world in which the women are cool and in control and the men are mostly flustered and falling apart. At one point, John Ritter literally falls into Dorothy's arms. At other points, Bogdanovich had Ritter and Stratton act out scenes from his own courtship of Dorothy, including a scene in which he reads her palm. The film ends with Dorothy's character, Dolores, agreeing to divorce her husband and marry Ritter's character. This was wish fulfillment, but it didn't seem that out of bounds. Peter and Dorothy were making real plans for the future. In order to put these plans in motion, she would have to divorce Paul Snyder. She slowly began freezing her husband out. In May, still in New York working on the movie, she wrote Paul a letter informing him that she needed space. He didn't want to accept it, 
and insisted on meeting her the following week in Vancouver, where her mother was getting married. In Vancouver, Paul had set up public appearances for Dorothy, who as Playmate of the Year could command top dollar for showing up at nightclubs. She went through with the commitments Paul had made for her, and he kept all the dollars. A month later, after Dorothy had returned to New York, she sent him a legal letter of separation. He then seized $15,000 from their joint account and went to her bank in Los Angeles with another blonde, masquerading as Dorothy, in an attempt to clean out her personal account. It didn't work, and when Dorothy found out about it, any desire she had to let Paul down easy vanished. She told her lawyers to move forward with a divorce. Shortly thereafter, two photographers who Paul had been working with on trying to create a pinup poster of Dorothy showed up at Peter's hotel room, and Dorothy answered the door. This gave Paul definitive proof of the affair that he believed had broken up his marriage and was threatening to take away his meal ticket. When they all laughed, rapped, Dorothy and Peter spent 10 days together in London, and then she was sent on a brief publicity tour by Playboy. She was in touch with Paul, who was emotionally devastated, and she agreed to meet him in Los Angeles for lunch when she returned there. The afternoon of the lunch, Dorothy confessed what Paul had suspected. She was in love with Bogdanovich, and she was leaving Paul for him. She proposed they reach a financial settlement— took some clothes she wanted out of the closet of the apartment she and Paul shared, and moved into Bogdanovich's Bel Air home. A few days later, Paul bought a shotgun from a guy in the valley who had posted a classified ad. That night, he went to visit a mutual friend of his and Dorothy's, and seemingly offhandedly, mentioned Claudia Jennings, a playmate-turned-actress who starred in a number of Roger Corman films before falling asleep at the wheel of her car and dying when it crashed. Jennings had believed she was a character actress and had told people she thought she'd come into her own at the age of 30. When she died, she was 29. As Paul pointed out to his friend the night he bought the gun, sometimes actresses die right before their big breaks. The next day, Dorothy went back to the apartment she and Paul had shared with the intention of hammering out a financial settlement with her soon-to-be ex. Both of them would be dead before nightfall. The coroner would declare what happened in Paul Snyder's bedroom that day a possible suicide-slash-homicide. The LAPD claimed they couldn't tell for sure if Snyder had been the one to pull the trigger of the gun that killed both he and Dorothy because his hands were caked with too much blood. What did seem apparent was that her body had been moved after she had been shot in the face because there was a bloody handprint on her butt. Her body was found adjacent to a homemade bondage machine, which Paul had designed and built himself, And she had been sodomized before she died, and apparently raped vaginally after she had died. The tip of one of her fingers 
had been shot off because she apparently had held her hand up to her face when Paul had pointed his gun at it. Paul's body was found at the foot of his bed. He had some of Dorothy's blonde hair in one hand. He had fallen over the gun after the bullet had entered his brain. The bodies had been there long enough that by the time they were found, a line of ants was marching through the drying blood. It was Hugh Hefner who called Bogdanovich to tell him the news. Bogdanovich hadn't known that Dorothy was going to Paul's house that day. Dorothy's sister Louise later admitted that she had known, but Dorothy had told her not to tell Peter. Bogdanovich had been deep in the early throes of love, and his heartbreak was extraordinary. His shock, grief, and anger would cast a pall on his every action of the next few years. Eight days after the murder, Dorothy's body was cremated and her remains were buried at Westwood Memorial Park, the same location where Marilyn Monroe would rest for eternity. But Dorothy's story, like Marilyn's, didn't end there. In some ways, her life as a public figure was just beginning. The wave of post-mortems began in November 1980, when the Village Voice published a story about Stratton by Teresa Carpenter. Despite the fact that this expose implicitly criticized Stratton for having quote-unquote outgrown Snyder, thus sort of blaming the victim, it mostly depicted her as a wraith pinned between three men who sought to control her. Snyder, Hefner, and Bogdanovich. Ultimately, Carpenter came down hardest on Playboy for creating a culture in which men like Paul Snyder thought of women like Dorothy as their possessions. Carpenter, who won a Pulitzer Prize for the story, quoted Hefner in it, deflecting all responsibility onto Snyder himself, who he called, quote, a very sick guy who saw his meal ticket and his connection to power slipping away. Bogdanovich refused to participate in Carpenter's story, but his commentary after the fact indicated that he thought that the Village Voice account, while not entirely accurate, was a paragon of truth compared to the movie that was ostensibly based on it, Bob Fosse's Star 80, which was released in 1983. Its depiction of Dorothy as a passive, dumb blonde rubbed salt in a couple of very fresh wounds. Dorothy's murder, of course, being one, and the failure of the movie that Dorothy and Peter made together being another. After Dorothy's death, Bogdanovich would say, I just didn't give a damn if I ever made another movie again. But he was contractually obligated to finish They All Laughed, which he did. The film had been produced by the movie division of Time Life, which shuddered before it was completed, and the distribution rights fell to 20th Century Fox. Fox test-screened They All Laughed, and they weren't happy with the results. Dorothy is very good in They All Laughed, 
And the persona she puts forth is so breezy and joyful that you can't help but feel sad watching it that she'd never make another film. Fox believed that nobody wanted to see a fizzy romantic comedy starring a woman who had been murdered, and they decided to not spend money promoting it. So Bogdanovich eventually decided to buy the rights to the film back. He mortgaged his house for a loan. Everyone told him not to. Blaine Novak, a star and producer of They All Laughed, who had worked in distribution, was the most vehemently against it. But he did it anyway. Angry, still grieving, Bogdanovich set up his own company to distribute the film, called Moon Pictures. This was not something that people were really doing in 1982. The movie got some stellar reviews. There was even some talk that Colleen Camp would get nominated for an Oscar. But Peter Bogdanovich was just one man, and he couldn't compete for screens with the studios. After a smash week at The Man in Westwood, they all laughed was pushed out by Reds. And Bogdanovich was trying to release the film's soundtrack on his own, too. It was too much. He was spread too thin. He ran out of money. He retreated into his Bel Air manse and devoted all of his energy to writing a book called The Killing of the Unicorn. In it, he recounted his relationship with Dorothy in great detail. He blamed himself, to some extent, for her fate. He believed that if he had known more about Snyder, whom he never met, he could have protected Dorothy from him. But he put more blame on Hefner. The Killing of the Unicorn is a grief diary, sometimes an ugly one, but it's also an anti-porn manifesto in which Bogdanovich eviscerates the sexual revolution. Its true purpose, he writes, was to make things easier for the men to get laid. The macho platform of the typical playboy was a promise of unlimited sexual pleasure. But for whom? He adds... The truth is that men like to fantasize about raping women. This so-called revolution, Bogdanovich wrote, has been a great boon for that urge. This book made Hugh Hefner very, very angry. Bogdanovich's feminism-influenced assessment of the psychological lure of the playboy lifestyle was one thing, but Hefner was most upset by the accusation, which Bogdanovich articulated in his book for the first time, that Hefner had raped Dorothy. The suggestion that Hugh Hefner would quote-unquote have to resort to rape to get a playmate to sleep with him was devastating for his image. Hefner hired a psychiatrist who had never met Bogdanovich to write a psychological profile analyzing his supposed psychosis. Later, in a long Rolling Stone profile intended to restore his reputation, Hefner criticized Dorothy's, quote, very bad taste in men, and women working at the mansion mocked Bogdanovich as a creep who wore boxer shorts in the jacuzzi. But the Playboy founder's main salvo was a press conference in which he counter-accused Bogdanovich of rape. Statutory rape. Bogdanovich... Hefner claimed, was currently having a sexual relationship with Dorothy's sister Louise, who had been 12 at the time of the murder and was now 16. 
he brought out a former husband of Dorothy and Louise's mother, who claimed that he had witnessed Louise and Peter sharing a bed, and further alleged that Peter had paid a plastic surgeon to change Louise's jaw so that she'd look more like Dorothy. Louise and Nellie immediately hired Gloria Allred, who filed a slander suit against Hefner on their behalf. The women denied any romance between Louise and Peter. The jaw change, it was explained, was done by Louise's orthodontist in the course of fixing her teeth. The LAPD investigated but couldn't find evidence of an improper relationship between Bogdanovich and the younger Stratton. In August 1985, after Playboy started conducting depositions, Louise dropped her lawsuit. It was shaping up to be a long, grueling, and expensive ordeal. And there was no way her side could have outspent Hefner's side. A few months later, Bogdanovich filed for bankruptcy. The effort to self-release They All Laughed had drained him in all sorts of ways, but a tangible one was that it created about $5 million of personal debt. A little over three years after that, 20-year-old Louise Stratton and Peter Bogdanovich were married. They would both use the metaphor of a shipwreck to explain why they had clung to one another. Bogdanovich would also freely acknowledge that he fell for his second wife because she looked like the woman he had lost. He'd say things like, quote, It's like, is there any more at home like you? People acted like it was some strange thing that Dorothy had a sister I might be interested in, but I don't know why. It was her sister. There was a resurgence of interest in They All Laughed about 10 years ago, when Quentin Tarantino put it on a list of his favorite films of all time. A DVD was issued, featuring a conversation between Bogdanovich and Wes Anderson. Just last year, a documentary about They All Laughed was released, called One Day Since Yesterday, in which Tarantino, Anderson, and Noah Baumbach attest to the film's influence on them. The influence on movies like The Royal Tenenbaums and Baumbach's recent New York set films with strong female parts like While We're Young and Mistress America is obvious. For Tarantino, you don't see the influence on his work as much as you see that Tarantino was inspired by Bogdanovich as a celebrity director. And They All Laughed is the last movie that he would make while riding high on a wave of famous person confidence. I watched this documentary twice. It's really good. And the first time, I just enjoyed it. But the second time, I found it to be unbearably sad because of the way it contrasts images of Bogdanovich on the set of They All Laughed, young, in love, and just laughing, laughing, laughing with images of him today, with trauma and years of dealing with it etched onto his face. Dorothy Stratton's death was horrible and so sad in and of itself. But for most of us, the gruesome details of it are left to our imaginations, so we can abstract them if we choose to. But there's no denying the visual evidence written on Bogdanovich's face of the pain of being the person left behind alive. 
Thus concludes this season of You Must Remember This. We'll be back in late June with a new season. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our editor is Sam Dingman. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. If you like the show, Please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and find us on Facebook and Instagram, too. With the hiatus coming up between seasons, you should go to iTunes and make sure you're subscribed so that you get the next episode as soon as it drops. Also, if you rate and review the show on iTunes, it really helps other people find us. We'll be back in June with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.